welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And this week I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Chris Van Tulliken. Chris is an infectious diseases doctor at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in London. He trained at Oxford and has a PhD in molecular virology from University College London, where he is an associate professor. His research focuses on how corporations affect human health, especially in the context of child nutrition, and he works with UNICEF and the World Health Organization on this area. Chris is also one of the BBC's leading broadcasters for children and adults, and his work has won two BAFTAs. In this interview, we talk about Chris's new book, Ultra Processed People, Why Do We All Eat Stuff That Isn't Food, and Why Can't We Stop? The book takes a deep dive into the science, economics, history, and production of ultra-processed food. In particular, we discuss some of the effects of UPF on our brains and bodies, and how the food industry positions UPF to dominate our diets. Chris, welcome. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today for the Madden America podcast. I'm really thrilled to uh, to have you on. It's um, a real pleasure to be here. I mean, we, we I've I've been I feel like we've been um, meaning to have some sort of conversation like this for several years. So <laughs> it's good that the book has catalyzed. Uh, the discussion absolutely a, a book is always a good uh, good talking point to get round. So, Chris, you're so well known for so much. Your BBC broadcasting, your work investigating the marketing tactics of baby formula manufacturers, and I personally know you best from your BBC series, The Doctor Who Gave Up Drugs, where you looked at what could be done about the dramatic rise in the use of prescription drugs in the UK. But uh, it's great to be here today to talk about your brand new book entitled Ultra Processed People, Why Do We All Eat Stuff That Isn't Food and Why Can't We Stop? And I have to say, uh, it's a fascinating and worrying examination of the intentional shift in our diet that's happened over the last 70 years or so. So while I was reading it, kind of I wondered what made you interested in writing ultra-processed people and did it follow on naturally from your work when you looked at the uh, infant formula market and tactics used there? I've got sort of three answers to that question for for sort of different audiences. All of them are true. One is that I'm an infectious diseases doctor and I do, do tropical medicine and for a long time I worked in humanitarian emergencies and I saw a lot of infant death because of the marketing of uh, infant food uh, to people who couldn't afford it, who had no clean water to make it up, and who couldn't read the instructions to give it properly. And that was that's that was my interaction with what was called in the 70s commerciogenic malnutrition. A lot of people boycotted some of these companies in the 70s and the 80s when I was a student, and I assumed the problem had been solved. And yet, when I was working in uh, 2008, 9, 10, in these contexts, this was still going on very aggressively. The second reason is my my brother has lived with obesity for a very long time, my identical twin brother, and I've had a, a complex relationship with him about that. I found it very, very distressing, and I've stigmatized him and, and kind of harassed him about it for a long time. And part of the journey of the book was sort of un, untangling that and realizing how I've interacted with him about weight and shame. Um, And then, as you say, it was a very natural extension of the work I was doing around other commercial determinants of health. So the way that companies affect our health and and companies affect our health in good and bad ways. They employ us, they give us goods and services. 
But many industries have a very significant negative effect, effect on our health. And, and the pharma industry and the food industry are intimately linked. And once you start seeing things through this prism, and that this is most of my academic work now, you start to realise the the wide effects of the the relationships that particularly the medical profession has with uh, either the pharmaceutical or the food industry. So yeah, that that the journey to get there was was through all that work. Great, thank you, Chris. And and so could we talk a little bit about the definition of ultra processed food because it's not exactly straightforward, is it? Well, there's a very long formal scientific definition that's been used to try and delineate and study the. The category of food that we know is harmful. It's it's a working definition of junk food, essentially. Um, the the shorthand way that's really effective for people is if it's wrapped in plastic and it's got something in it that you don't find in a domestic kitchen. It's ultra processed food. Uh, I spoke earlier to um, today to Marion Nessel, who's a, a who's a professor at NYU in the states. She's done a huge amount of work on the food industry, and her rule of thumb is if if you couldn't make it at home, it's UPF, and that's that's a pretty good one too. And that the nuance to that is there's a lot of lasagna out there and a lot of pizza out there that you feel like you might be able to make at home, but it's in plastic and it might or might not have something weird in it. So in the UK, a lot of listeners are going to recognise these kind of fringe foods that are we are they UPF are they not? They, they, they might even have, they've got very long lists of ingredients, but you might have most of them in a well-stocked kitchen. And that's that's the sort of stuff around the edges. But broadly, it's it's stuff with the additives, emulsifiers, stabilizers, sweeteners, um, xanthan gum, potassium sorbate, anything like that. It's all ultra processed. While I was reading the book, I couldn't help but think that if the labels on food actually said how the food was manufactured, so, you know, it might say extruded or mechanically recovered or emulsified or whatever else, a lot of what we eat might suddenly become less appetizing. Pommel's kind of an interesting example because you'll see it on loads of ingredients lists. And of course, it is a traditional food. I've worked a lot in Western Central Africa and it, you crush it out of a palm nut and eat it. And it's this kind of extraordinary, like spicy, bright red oil. Um, the palm oil that's in our chocolate spread and in our peanut butter and in our bread and in our biscuits and in almost everything is refined, bleached, deodorized, hydrogenated and interesterified in order to take it from that spicy red flavorful oil that spoils quite quickly into an absolutely um, a, a solid commodity fat that's interchangeable with anything from chicken fat to beef suet to butter to uh, any of the other solid fats that we can make out of plant oils. So yes, we don't label food accurately. <laughs> I, think, I think that's fair to say. And perhaps even more, you know, there are some pretty unbelievable health claims aren't there on on the packaging of upf that isn't really you know when, when you buy a box of eggs it doesn't have that kind of promotion on it but upf manufacturers can get away with making healthy claims about low sugar or low salt i mean i think it's a good rule of thumb that if a food has a health claim anywhere written on it it's probably ultra processed if it's associated with weight loss or it's high in fiber or it's vitamin enriched or um, you know, has 30% less sugar or will support weight loss as part of a balanced diet, that is almost guaranteed to be ultra-processed food. And agonizing about like any one product, what's really important to say is, and everyone sort of phone, literally friends phone me up and they're like, I'm trying to eat this sausage roll. Can I just read you the ingredients? And my interest is not in demonizing 
individual products. This in the UK and the US, these 60% of our calories on average come from ultra processed food. It's normal for children to eat 80, 90% of their calories from ultra processed food. So having a, a, a bit of palm oil in your peanut butter misses the point. It's when our entire diet is built around these foods that are really about extracting money from us, and many of them are quite addictive. That's that's the issue. Worrying about any one thing is is to slightly miss the point, in my view. There is some evidence that consumption of ultra-processed food could be linked to issues such as ADHD, autism, and depression. And we know that UPF affects the microbiome, and it's not too much of a leap to believe that it could affect our mental health too. So what do we know about that? Does eating UPF change the brain? We're pretty sure it does. So the, the way the evidence works is we've got some laboratory science about the individual macronutrients and some of the additives that are there, and also to do with the texture of the food. So we've got a lot of really good science on very soft food and dry food and energy-dense food. And that's typically ultra-processed food is soft, dry, and energy-dense because that's it's palatable and it drives consumption and it keeps for a long time. So we've got this lab data saying, yeah, there are lots of qualities and additives in this food that are in these experiments associated with things that we might be problems. Then we've got epidemiological data. So we look at population studies. And the great problem for the epidemiologist to solve has been to go, is this just fatty, salty, sugary food? Is this just what we think of classically as junk food? Or is the processing important? And by processing, I mean not just the additives and the, the physical and thermal and chemical processing, but also the marketing, which we're very certain drives excess consumption. So we've got loads of epidemiological data now, which makes all these statistical adjustments for salt, sugar, fat, fiber, and dietary pattern. And when you control for all those things in your big regression analysis, what you see is the effect remains unchanged in magnitude and significance in almost all of the outcomes. So the population data associates uh, ultra-processed food with weight gain most of the research is around that. But we're also sure it's associated with um, uh, all cancers, including some specific cancers, uh, heart attacks, strokes, so cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease, dementia, anxiety, depression, and early death. The ADHD links are a bit a bit weak. There's, there's sort of more work to be done there. It, it, how it drives all this, we've got lots of clues and instincts. So it might be molecules like acrylamide, which we think drive brain inflammation. It might be migratory molecules from the plastics. Uh, it might be some of the additives directly, like some of the colours and the flavourings. Um, or it might be that it affects our brain because it subverts our body's evolved systems that guide nutritional intake. And it might be it affects our brain because it gives us piles, it forces us to overeat, it takes away our control and our agency from our diet because we become addicted to it, and that leads us into the spiral of anxiety and depression. Or it might be all of the above. I, I personally suspect it is all of the above. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Chris. And there was a fascinating experiment you described in the book where children were allowed to eat or choose food according to their wishes, you know, relatively healthy food. And they they were actually guided by their bodies to fill in the nutritional gaps in their diet, weren't they, without them even being aware of it? This was this kind of amazing study done in the 20s by a woman called Clara Davis. And she she took um, uh, 
essentially uh, children it was quite normal for children to be uh, cared for by people other than their their mothers and so there's a lot we don't understand about what she did but she set up basically a nutritional institute with very young children and they were allowed to choose their diet from uh, it was 34 different little dishes so each each child would get at any one meal they get 12 of these dishes and it included things like raw beef and bone marrow and uh, kind of ferment, it was called lactic milk, which is sort of basically thin yogurt. Um, they'd get a little dish of salt so they could, they could dip things in salt if they wanted, but all the food was, it wasn't all raw. Some of it was cooked and the, and they also got a cup of cod liver oil. And this was the nicest detail. There was a kid called Earl who, um, who'd been raised in, in, in terrible poverty. And as he was weaned from his mother's breast, it was, was essentially adopted by Clara Davis. And he came with rickets. So he, he, there are x-rays of him in the scientific papers and a photograph of him. And he had, he had bow legs and, and really bad bone damage. And he drank a little cup of cod liver oil of his own volition. He, the kids could choose what they wanted uh, every single day until his x-rays improved and his bones regained density and his rickets went away. And at that point, he stopped choosing to drink cod liver oil and never touched it again. And so if we look at the animal kingdom, uh, animals eat without labels, without instructions, without nutritional guidance, and um, they do it pretty well. They build their bodies very effectively and have done so for millennia. So we have these systems inside us. And this doesn't mean that we... There's a, there's a risk in talking about all this that people think I'm going well. We need to re return to a sort of raw diet and um, eat 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 a true kind of attempt at a paleo diet. Processing of food is really really important. So we we've talked about ultra processed food. Processed food is fine. We've been processing food for well over a million years. Humans are the only obligate processivores. We have to process our food. Our jaws and our guts are way smaller than other animals of our size. And that's because we, we digest our food essentially outside of our bodies. We chop it up with knives and we, we digest it with cooking. So processing is fine. And if we eat processed food, most of us should be pretty good at regulating our nutritional intake without um, an instruction manual. And the difficulty that's been reported since the 20s is if we eat food that is ultra-processed, it has been designed in a way that, that gets around our satiety mechanisms particularly. Thank you, Chris. In reading the book, I couldn't help but be struck by similarities in the way that big food operates like big oil and big pharma. So it's hugely wealthy. It engages in massive marketing spend. It influences consumer groups and it even sponsors research that shows its product in the best possible light. So how can we as mere consumers make a stand against that? Almost the biggest problem that needs to be solved is not one single regulatory action. So we, we should, for example, limit the marketing of this food in the way that we limit the marketing of, of drugs of abuse uh, and tobacco products. Um, but the main thing we need to change is our culture around how we relate to the industry. So with the pharmaceutical industry, there is um, at least some understanding that these conflicts of interest within the research do drive biased or corrupt outcomes. Now, it still happens and pharma are very skillful at kind of um, controlling the way we think about our, our bodies and, and the treatments for when we get ill. W with food, the food industry has captured, just as the pharma industry has, you know, everything from the basic research to the charities that inform government policy. So um, if, if you think of any charity 
about human health and diet that you can name almost, particularly some of the activism ones, some of the ones associated with particular diseases, um, whether it's cancer or diabetes, um, they are funded by the manufacturers of UPF. And, 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 and many of my media colleagues uh, uh, are funded by these companies. Their research is funded. They're paid directly. Um, the, the research is sponsored. Until we disentangle ourselves from those conflicts, we will never, ever solve the problem. And if, if people get only one thing from reading my book, it's to understand that particularly obesity, but all diet-related disease is commerciogenic. It's caused by the interests of industry. And, and the pharma industry, we know, we've known for a long time, it's, it's what we call financialized. So part of the work of activists of the kind that you work with has been to demonstrate that the interest of these companies, they're their primary and almost sole interest is delivering value to, to shareholders. And yet they pretend to be stakeholders. You know, they say, oh, we're interested in all our, we're interested in patients. Of course, shareholders need some money, but we're, our primary focus is the treatment of disease in the patients. And we've, we've shown very clearly now that that is not the case with the pharmaceutical industry, the way they price gouge and market drugs and, and the way that drugs dominate our treatment for, for, for illness, the, the primacy of that biomedical model of disease that all your listeners will be familiar with. With food, it's, it's the same. They, they dominate the ecosphere. And we, we know that they're financialized in the sense that they are uh, paying less and less tax, spending less and less on advertising, doing less and less that contributes to the economy. They don't build infrastructure. They employ fewer and fewer people. What they do is they rent seek off their brands. They do share buybacks. Uh, they buy cheap debt and pay it to shareholders. They function, by, uh, you know, according to some of the experts that I spoke to, or the, the ex-industry insiders I spoke to, they function more like banks who specialize in food and ingredients than they do as food producers. And the, the big bit of the book is, is my journey to understand that the food supply system isn't really a food supply system. It's an inverted money supply system. We are the the source of money, and we are sort of mined, our health is commodified in order to extract that money. And obviously, I mean, it's not a very complicated hypothesis, is it? it it's, it's very testable. If you can make an addictive product at a rock bottom price, that's what you should do if you're a transnational food corporation. And the idea that food made by transnational food corporations and the scientists that work for them might interact with our physiology somewhat differently to the food that you know, a, a parent or a community member would make to, to because they love us and they want to nourish us, that food might interact with our physiology a bit differently. I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? So this is, this is a hypothesis that our grandparents would have been very familiar with. Our grandparents did worry about this. My mum worried about this. And all the team in Brazil who came up with the idea of ultra-processing and they defined it, all they did was, was create a definition that we could generate evidence around and, and kind of prove our grandparents right when they said, hmm, emulsifiers in bread, that seems a bit weird. There's a brilliant example of, you know, how, how the industry has, uh, you know, maintained a profit motive first over nutritional value where you describe in the book, I think it's your daughter's experience with an ice cream in a park where, you know, the ice cream doesn't melt in the heat. And of course, that's because it's far more commercially viable for these companies to transport this stuff all around the globe if they don't need to chill it. And was, it's obvious, obvious now, but not never occurred to me before. I mean, people, you know, if you, if you leave ice cream in a bowl, it retains its ball shape more or less, i mean it'll melt, there'll be a bit of liquid that comes out of it but it will stay a warm a warm ball of foam now in my book weirdly 
and I wonder if I feel a bit like this about the pharmaceutical industry, to some extent, they aren't really the bad guys. We are allowing them to do this. Now, of course, they are campaigning and um, bringing legal actions and creating the environment in which they can create these monopolies and dominate the discourse and cause all these external health, externalized costs and, and health problems. But um, really, it's the failure of government and doctors and scientists to act as regulators that is the they are the baddies in my book. The charities that accept the money and launder the reputations and dilute all the activism, they're, they're the people who could make a different choice. When you talk to people in the food industry and, I, and the pharma industry as well, a lot of the people that informed this book did in fact work for the pharmaceutical industry because it was safe to go to my contacts in, in pharma and say, hey, I'm talking about food. Can you just tell me how your company works? Whereas if you tackle people in the food industry, there's a sort of dissonance where they, they feel it ill at ease. Whereas people in the pharmaceutical industry love slagging off the people who work in the food industry. They feel comfortable doing that. Of course, when you say, but are you guys doing the same thing? They'll go, oh, yeah, no, we sort of do do the same thing. So when you're in these companies, many of the people at the companies want to do things differently. And I give an example of Michel Faber at Danone, who... Uh, I believe sincerely wanted to make Danon a, a company that was better for the environment and better for people's health. And he was removed uh, very rapidly by activist investors. Activist investors, of course, are not all um, trying to get oil companies to leave oil in the ground. Activist investors are also going, we want our money. And I have some sympathy with the activist investors because the activist investors are answerable to me and my pension. You know, my, my NHS pension will be in the transnational food corporations. So there's this 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 trap, this loop of kind of late capitalism where huge asset funds own these companies and drive um, uh, these 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 behaviors that generate profit at, 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 you know at the expense of everything else. And the, the people who can make a choice aren't the people in the food companies. They're not in control. Governments can and doctors can. and the, the medical profession has been, you know, we have signed up to obligations to our, our patients and and the population in general. We, you know, we're very clear. We're paid not by those people. We we can we you know, I can make good money just working as a doctor. I can pay all my bills, and so we we do have the freedom to go. Yeah, I'm not actually going to take money from tobacco, alcohol, or or food or, or pharma, and yet we do. Uh, there's a kind of um, almost a neat, as if it's been planned, coming together of the food and the pharmaceutical industry, isn't there? So in the news recently, a lot has been jabs for obesity. And so, you know, of course, you've got a food industry that's blaming inactivity, not the sugar content for people, you know, struggling with their weight. And then along comes pharma and says, well, we've got a jab for that now. It's it's the eat me, drink me approach to modern life where we go, we've got all this diet-related disease, let's invent drugs to fix it. I mean, I, I'm a fan of the weight loss drugs. I, I should say, you know, we should be able to celebrate treatments for lung cancer while simultaneously going, let's also invest in some, some smoking prevention, uh, you know, tobacco control strategies. And what we're doing with food is we're going, let's invest billions in drugs that won't work nearly as well as the celebrities say they do, as the initial trials say they do. No, no drug in history has ever worked that well. Um, they do help some people for a period of time lose quite a significant amount of weight. They probably won't work nearly as well in people who live in food deserts um, with very low income levels uh, and no uh, financial ability 
uh, or geographical ability to buy actual food. And, and you know, these are displaced people and people of colour and Indigenous communities across North America and, in fact, around the world. And, and so, yeah, we've been so willing to buy these drugs and spend those billions, and yet we are absolutely paralysed when it comes to any kind of food corporation regulation, like z- zero. There is almost no regulation. And until we disentangle the conflicts of interest, we, we won't have any regulation. I kind of really like the fact that the book isn't telling people how to live their lives or a particular diet to follow or, or, or any of that kind of stuff. It's, you know, it is more of a, an informed consent approach, I think, in terms of giving people the information they need to make the best choices for themselves and their family's health. But, you know, if, if people listening wanted to start to make changes to reduce their consumption of UPF, are there some small, simple things that they could start with? I essentially refuse to give anyone any advice almost about anything like it i i i know nothing about the lives of your individual listeners i know very little about the lives of my patients i barely understand my own life um my my proposal in the book is is a fairly straightforward one um you're part of an experiment you didn't volunteer for uh new molecules new combinations of molecules are being tried in your food the whole time um, you take all the risk in these, ex- these experiments, the companies get all the benefit. While you read the book, continue. if you're someone who struggles with this food, continue to eat the foods you struggle with, the foods you want, the foods you enjoy. And this is the approach that the, you know, the famous, um, uh, the easy way to quit smoking takes. And what I didn't realize until I, I had the experience that I ate an ultra-processed food diet for the book. And about three quarters of the way through the diet, I spoke to this scientist in Brazil, Fernanda Rauba, and she just kept going, it's not food, it's an industrially produced edible substance. And that night, I it was like I'd fallen out of love and I just couldn't eat my, my fried chicken dinner. And um, that's sort of what I want to do to the reader is, is bring them on that journey and go, look, speak to the people I've spoken to through me in the book, keep eating the food, and you may find yourself released from the addiction by the end of it. And that Alan Carr... That method works very well. There's lots of evidence. The World Health Organization recommend it as a smoking cessation strategy. And lots of people who have read the book so far. So all my um, my kind of editors and and uh, and my my family have all had this experience of going, oh, I, I just can't eat it anymore. So I, the book is trying to disgust the reader with, I hope, without stigma. But in terms of advice, You've got to become a philosopher of your food. I, I, I passionately believe if, if you're listening to this and you struggle with binges, with overeating, with weight, with control, um, I, all I can give you is sort of some love and support and ask you to become a philosopher of your own diet and eat the food think about the food as you as you taste the low fat mayonnaise start to wonder about the fact that the gum has replaced the oil and there's there's a bacterial exudate in there that's kind of snotty and it's a bit like mayonnaise but it's also not quite like mayonnaise um you know that you should enter this sort of uncanny valley of finding your food a bit a bit ghoulish but i can't i can't promise it's going to happen i certainly can't promise you're going to lose weight if that's what you want to do and I don't think really that anyone should lose weight. I don't even think that anyone should eat less ultra-processed food. 
my suspicion is if we reduce poverty and inequality, people would eat less. And that most people, when they start to engage with the idea of emulsifiers and artificial sweeteners and what they do to the body, most people go, I think I'll, I'll probably not, not eat this, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm allergic to telling people what to do because it, it just never works. You know, every therapist knows this is that if, if someone wants to change, it's, it's down to them. And, and that the tragedy is so many of us are sort of trapped by, by circumstance and, and, and bad fortune. So that I dodged that question, didn't I? But I hope it's useful to someone. I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know. The, the book, the book, writing the book changed my life. I mean, this sounds corny, but um, it did. And it, it changed Zand's life particularly. I mean, Zand, as he read the manuscript and as I stopped bullying him, Zand lost about 25 kilos. And I, I hate, I'm not celebrating that because he doesn't look better. I'm not even convinced he's very much healthier, but he, he is, he's done something for him that he's happy with. And so that, that I am happy about. Chris, is there anything that we didn't cover that you think particularly important? I hate framing these things as a problem. All the way through the book, I've struggled with the idea of like an obesity crisis an obesity pandemic, the problem of obesity. It, it is a problem in the sense it causes colossal suffering and it does hurt children particularly who can't, who have no agency over what they eat. But I, I do want to sort of acknowledge that, that if, if someone is listening and they, they are living with obesity, that using, I think using that phrase is quite important, that framing it as living with in the same way we do now with HIV, with cancer, with epilepsy, with diabetes, we, we don't say you are a diabetic or an epileptic. We don't say you are cancerous. And so I, I think if someone's living with this, they, they just, the whole conversation is just separating with shame and guilt and blame. And um, I would like people to understand is it, it really isn't them. It is, it is the food and you should feel angry and you are a victim. And the journey out of victimhood, I think, is activism. You know, I had this sort of moment of, oh, I've, I've been duped. This is, oh, I'm, I've, 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 I'm the victim of these predatory corporations and people who, who fail to regulate them. And then you, then you turn that victimhood, it's not a very useful emotion, victimhood. So you, I sort of turned that into, into, into real rage. Chris, it's just been fantastic to talk to you today. I have to say, you know, I really encourage people listening to read the book. You know, it is so packed with science and, you know, the, the, the research going on in corners of the world that's really important that we probably wouldn't hear about in mainstream journals unless you'd been there to talk to the people involved. The book's funny at points. It's, it's, it's poignant in others. It's, you know, I think I referred to it as, you know, stomach churning and gut wrenching. You know, it really makes you think about what you're putting into your body and the bodies of your families. And, you know, I, I hope the book does really well because it's something I think people need to read, actually. Well, I really appreciate your kind words on that. I, I don't know what to say that isn't going to be immodest, but I really appreciate it. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Well, I just want to thank Chris so much for taking the time to chat. His book, Ultra Processed People, is available in the UK now and in June 2023 in the US. The book is a very important read, particularly to understand the effects of UPF on our brains and bodies, but also the effect on society and the environment too. 
To find out more about Chris's book, you can visit the website www.norton.com and search for Ultra Processed People. So thank you as always for listening and for your support of Madden America. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.